I take it that means that's a good reason not to use. Is it the period import in Go? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's just one more reason not to use that. I know it's not really encouraged in Go anyway. I think the only place I've actually seen it is in like testing frameworks maybe, but it is good to know that that's one more reason why it's not necessarily a good thing to be using. Yes, well, it's a, for blind developer at least so that... Uh, I would almost argue for every developer. Yeah. But. Well, yeah, exactly, but yeah, you know... <laughs> Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. What's up, Gophers? This episode is brought to you by friends at Teleport. With Teleport Access Plane, you can quickly access any computing resource anywhere. Engineers and security teams can unify access to SSH servers, Kubernetes clusters, web applications, and databases across all environments. Teleport is open core, which you can use for free, and it's supported by their cloud-hosted version, which lets you forget about configuring, updating, or managing Teleport. The Teleport team does all that for you. Your team can focus on your projects and spend less time worrying about infrastructure access. Try Teleport today in the cloud, self-hosted, or open source. Head to GoTeleport.com to learn more and get started. Again, GoTeleport.com. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Subscribe if you're new at gotime.fm and follow the show on Twitter for the unpop polls, notifications of when we go live, and other solid tweets like interesting repos from your fellow gophers. We are at gotime.fm. All right, that's all for me. Here we go. everybody and welcome to GoTime. Today I am joined by Dominic St. Pierre, a polyglot software engineer and a huge fan of Go and Elm. Might have to edit that last bit out. We can't be advertising for Elm here. <laughs> Sorry, Dominic. So how are you doing, Dominic? I'm doing very good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So today we're going to be talking about using Go as a blind developer. So I hope you're ready to carry the show because I know very little about this and I'm here to learn with everybody else. Sure. So I guess to start off... For anybody who's unfamiliar with the process, how do you like actually code as a blind developer? Like, what does that process look like? Sure. Maybe before that, I, I'd like to specify. You know, when you hear the word "blind," it does not really mean someone that does not have any sights at all. So I'm on the category that I do have a little bit of vision. So it, you know, I, I like to point that out at first because it, it's very, it's very difficult sometimes to understand that there is multiple level of blindness, if you will. It's a spectrum rather than like a, an on-off type switch. Yeah, exactly. It's not a Boolean, for sure. <laughs> so how am I developing? Well, I was lucky enough, to be frank, to have uh, enough vision a long time ago. So uh, I have a degenerative disease, visual disease, that is fairly common. And, you know, there's not much escape for me. And sadly... In the last two years, I've lost a lot of my uh, central vision. So we will come back to that uh, later. But I just want to give a little bit of uh, background here because I'm in, in a transition at this moment. So I'm kind of transiting from uh, mostly a, a normal way of working. Let's say five years from now, I was like using bigger text font and, and whatnot, but not really a huge uh, difference from a normal sighted person, if I can say that. So these days, I'm learning, in fact, to start working with uh, more assistive tooling, like screen reader, and uh, it's not an easy uh, transition, if I can say that. So I've always have been legally blind, but my vision is, is getting lower and lower as I go. So to answer the questions, well, I'm trying to work as much as I can as a normal programmer, I guess. But I started to felt huge roadblock since like three years ago, for example, so when I when I started to lose my, my central vision, if you will. So yeah, hopefully I, I have not lost you already, but uh, yeah, 
it's a tough one to answer first, I guess. No, it, it completely makes sense. And I think it's good for people to know that it's not always black or white and that some people are in the situation like you are where they have to completely relearn something they've done for years at a time, which in many ways can be possibly more challenging than like being accustomed to that and then jumping into coding. Developers struggle with changing like editors and things like that. So the fact that you'd have to completely change up your tool set is a huge change. Absolutely. It started at the OS level. So yeah, it's... Uh... It is not an easy path at the moment for me, for sure, especially when, when you're used to uh, to go fast. So small things, as we would go along, you know, small things can really slow down uh, blind developers. And yeah, I'm, I'm learning as I go. It's difficult because the tooling is, is of course, not... There's so many of us that it's very hard to have uh, stellar tooling at the moment. I saw a talk, I think it was a VS or Visual Studio talk, I think it was linked on Twitter whenever you said you would come join us. Yeah. And just seeing that, it was kind of interesting because as somebody who's never even, like, unfortunately, I've never even really thought about, like, how does somebody code if they can't see? And if I was developing software, that it wouldn't really be the first thing I'd think about just because it's not something you experience from day to day. But then seeing somebody do it, like, it's kind of eye-opening because you're like, oh, like, there's a lot of things I could be doing better in whether it's a website or a software or whatever else. And you just don't think about it because it's just not your day-to-day type activity. So I imagine that would be, like you said, it would be hard because that might not be the first priority when they're releasing software. Yes, exactly. You know, we we are almost just getting started to have the the website that we are creating to be as accessible as we. It's not the automatic for uh, even for creating websites. So yeah, for sure, when when you're writing code. Well, it's certainly not the the first thing that came up, but I would guess that uh, when you have a blind developer on your team, then it's uh, it starts to make sense to uh, to do you know the the small things. I would say the the most obvious would be function name. I mean, being explicit as explicit as possible with function name is extremely helpful for blind developers. Everything that relates to moving, navigating the code. So as much as, as other developers can help, this is a huge, uh, huge difference. So I guess this is up to you. Where would you like to start? Like, do you want to talk about some of the tools you're using or where would you like to start with the conversation? Well, yeah, I can uh, talk about the tool. It's fairly simple for me. Like I was saying, I, I'm in a transition. So not using a screen reader to using a screen reader, it, it is, it's the hardest thing I, I've done in my life and I, I'm not, not there yet. So the video that you were referring to, Take a completely blind uh, developer, for example, which were uh, like that since their birth, for example. Compared to me, they are able to capture or understand the screen reader in a speed that I I just cannot, I'm not there yet. I don't even know how, how they are doing that. I'm blind since birth as well, but... I always have a little visual. Uh, so yeah, it's it's hard. So what I'm doing at this moment is that I force myself to close my screen at the moment. So I'm, I need to close my screen and I need to try to learn to use that. So it, it is difficult. I'm a Linux user. I've been using Linux, uh, you know, day-to-day since uh, 2014. The tooling that I, I'm used there, it is extremely... Uh, performant for me uh, until three years ago. So I'm, I'm using i3 as the tile manager. I'm not using my mouse, never. All my windows are always maximized and I'm using the, the virtual desktop of i3. So that was very good. This way of working will, will not work for me in the next year or two years. I'm trying to switch to a, a GNOME-based desktop because the only screen reader on, on Linux is uh, Orca, actually. And yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, if it's going to work. To me, th- this is another very, very difficult change, you know, accepting to leave my very comfortable zone. So the X-Render on Linux, you, you can just reverse all colors. So this is extremely useful when, uh, when, when you have a little bit of vision. Sometimes a uh, white background can be extremely difficult on your eyes. So that's the tooling I'm, I'm using. So basically, I'm transitioning to being full-time using a screen reader. But yeah, this is extremely challenging. Which editor are you using then? VS Code. Okay. So do you imagine there'll be a day where possibly you have to switch to a different operating system? I personally don't know how good the tooling is in Linux versus Windows versus like Mac. I don't really know, but I'd imagine that 
like you were saying, transitioning just to GNOME is already like a challenge. And I could potentially see a case where if some operating system just supports things better, you're stuck switching to something that's completely foreign in that sense. Yeah, that and and I mean, I frankly don't want to use Windows and I would not really want to use a Mac. But yeah, the I do have a, a Windows uh, a Windows machine, which I'm using to train myself on a screen reader. I'm using NVDA. This is a screen reader on Windows. This is working very fine. So it's not the accessibility to- tooling that I, I have a problem with switching OS. So, but, but yeah, uh, voiceover on Mac is, uh, seems to be very nice as well. This is something I really have to take a decision quick. I was even starting to think, well, I should maybe try to contribute to Orca on Linux and try to make it better, try to make it so I can continue to work on Linux because I I would be very sad, frankly, to leave. But it's a possibility. It's been like that for all my life. I stopped doing things that I love to do because I don't see enough anymore. So that's that's part of of my life. It's the way it is. Yeah, I I can definitely imagine that's a a tough thing to both accept and experience the transition of. Yep. So when it comes to programming then, like you said that you're a polyglot software engineer. So I guess my next question is, are you trying to stick with certain languages as you're learning these tools or are you trying to learn techniques that apply to everything or, or like what is that process like? So I'm mostly doing Go for the last six or seven years. I'm not sure how to answer that. So my I'm doing consulting. So my work requires me to work on you know lots of different languages and stacks and whatnot. This might be something I, you know, for example, doing front end at this moment, I'm not sure I will be able to do that anymore. Just because it's 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 very it's very hard to build beautiful front end application when you don't really really don't really see the the end result and whatnot. So I'm transitioning towards a back end language that will allow me to make sure that once I do run full-time on a screen reader, which is very soon for me, I will not have any issue. So I, I have tried lots of uh, different backend uh, language in, in the last 10 years. I have a lot to say about lots of them because it's uh, it's very different from a blind developer. And it's just those small things that makes a language more usable on a screen reader or not. One thing I'd like to add is that I think what might happen is that you might have a different opinion as to what makes a beautiful UI in the future, which <laughs> is going to be a very like very different from how other people see it, but it's also like a good to have a different perspective sometimes. And there might be a time where you're like you could be the specialist in helping people make it actually accessible and great for a great blind experience versus you know everybody's always focusing on things looking pretty versus being functional. Yeah. The good old time when everything was text-based. That is the world. This is where we should go. <laughs> kind of reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've looked at Remix as something kind of new in the React world. And one of the big things that they pitch is that essentially that with all the JavaScript stuff, it's kind of led to web pages that break traditional functionality. And that was like one of their big goals in creating it was that they want to allow people to make incremental changes to like take something that's basically just a regular HTML page and incrementally improve it without ruining the experience and they gave some examples of it but it's cool to see people focusing on that idea of let's not ruin the user experience that needs to be there for some reason and in some ways that has happened on this desire to like make everything i don't even know the right word for it like sort of like those real-time snappy javascript pages yeah so you said that you have a lot of opinions about the languages and, and the back-end languages so you're using go from what i gather you like go as a language so can you talk a little bit more about what makes Go an accessible language for you? Yeah. So for me, the reason number one would be the way packages are separated. So just by forcing the usage of the package name before a function, this is extremely easier for a blind developer. Like like I was saying uh, earlier, navigation is the enemy here. And knowing very quickly where this function is declared or implemented, this is huge. Take, for example, I, I was I was a C-sharp developer in, in a previous life. So my beginning, uh, my career started in, in .NET. And you can import a, a namespace in there and you just use functions. And we don't really have a way, an easy way to mouse over something and just see what's the namespace of that thing is. So just having that, 
clearly stated in Go, this is extremely uh, useful. I take it that means that's a good reason not to use. Is it the period import in Go? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's just one more reason not to use that. I know it's not really encouraged in Go anyway. I think the only place I've actually seen it is in like testing frameworks maybe. But it is good to know that that's one more reason why it's not necessarily a good thing to be using. Yes, well, it's a, for blind developer at least. So that uh, I would almost argue for every developer. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah, exactly. But yeah, you know. <laughs> so yeah, one one other thing. Well, of course, Godak. So on the terminal, Godak just having to look at what a function wants in its parameter and what what it is returning. It's strange because I, I can compare both worlds now because when you see your screen very well, then then yes, VS Code or any editor uh, will provide you a visual indication that this function accepts a S as a string, for example. But sometimes the screen reader are not picking those or they are they are not speaking the return type. Never. It's very hard. So this is a good thing. Uh, Godak is is extremely useful. So you you just go to your terminal. And your screen reader will have no issues whatsoever reading everything that the developer that wrote the, the, that function wanted you to do. So this this is major. That brings me to a downside as well while we are here. Small one-letter variable name in Go, is it is hard for screen reader as well and, and for the, the blind developer in general. Because especially when, when your rate is speaking very fast, you are missing those. We always use S string or V as interface and, and whatnot and go. And, and those are difficult. I can't relate exactly, but I listen to audiobooks on like 2x speed. And that's something that took me a while to get to that speed. And it depends on the narrator and a bunch of other aspects. But over several years of listening to audiobooks, I just gradually slowly increased the speed. But I can definitely say there are still times where certain words or phrases, for whatever reason, I have to like go back and slow it down because I can listen to it four times at 2x speed and for whatever reason, that sentence I cannot understand. But every other thing in the book is completely fine. So I could imagine there's certain variables and things like that that when they're thrown in there, it's like it's almost like they're too short or something that they just get skimmed over and it's like really hard to comprehend them at that time. Yeah, absolutely. That's a downside. But yeah, it's uh, all the tooling, of course. So the, the fact that everything everything is very easy on the command line makes it very nice. One major aspect I would say as well is, you know, when, when you try to go build something, let's say you have 500 errors, it will not spit out all of those errors. And this is major because you have to understand that a screen reader is a one-line thing. So it's very, very hard to navigate as well on the terminal. I don't know. I don't know if it's blocks at 10 or something like that, but but yeah, this is something that that is appreciated. So just showing less error at the same time, it's uh, helpful. How does that work for things like tests? If you're running tests and several of them are failing or, you know how like sometimes you would just get like a pass, which is nice. And then other times you'll get like a lot more output, it feels like. Yeah. So I would say that I'm using uh, most of the, the the dash run and using a subset of uh, of tests at once. So especially when something is wrong, the multiple outputs is an issue, and, and yes, this is a problem. But sometimes you don't you don't you don't have a choice. So you don't you can output that into a text file and and try to uh, try to make sense of that uh, in a more comfortable way. So that's different. This is where blind people would would lost precious minutes compared to uh, to sighted developer, for sure. Do you think there's anything that you could be improved in that sense? Like, I guess in my mind, I'm wondering if there's a way to either like summarize or like you almost summarize and say like eight tests failed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like something along those lines. Yeah, exactly. And maybe cherry pick exactly what you want to, what information you, you want to have. This would be great. So it's a tricky question, but... Uh, I understand. Even thinking about it now, I'm I'm... It's not something I'm experiencing, but at the same time, I could easily see how complicated and challenging that would be. And I'm sure I'm missing like a lot of nuance that you're experiencing that I'm not. Yeah, it's hard for me to answer as well, because at the same time, you know, the, the Go team cannot do too much changes to accommodate. So that would need to be third party or and whatnot. So at that time, it's a question of preferences. So yeah. It's interesting because you, you like talking about this makes me feel like there's probably a world of tools that could be built around like making that experience better. But 
it unfortunately probably needs somebody who is experiencing those pains to actually understand and know what to build. Call me crazy, but I suspect that most developers aren't willing to learn how to use a screen reader simply to experience that. Like you'd be very dedicated to do that. Yeah, I would guess not because frankly, it is not fun. (laughs) So I mean, but yeah, this is something I see myself doing in the future. So I've, I've always have a couple of open source projects myself here and there. I will not have any choice but to build what what I will need to continue working. I you know I love to to program. I will I will not stop doing that. So that's why I was also saying that you know if I have to I will contribute to Orca and try to make it work on a Linux distribution. This episode is brought to you by our friends at LaunchDarkly. Feature management for the modern enterprise. Power testing in production at any scale. Here's how it works. LaunchDarkly enables development teams and operation teams to deploy code at any time, even if a feature isn't ready to release to users. Wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. When you're ready to release more widely, update the flag status and the changes are made instantaneously by the real-time streaming architecture. Eliminate risk, deliver value, get started for free today at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com. So are there other things in Go that make, or really in any language that you've seen, what types of things should developers be looking out for if they're designing a language or improving, you know, like working on a programming language? What types of things have you seen so far that make it more challenging? I can tell that. Let's pick on Elixir a little bit here. I love it, by the way. I'm a huge fan, but, uh, but there is some things there that is very hard for a blind person. The symbol. So let, let's talk about symbols. So this is why Go is also very great because you don't really have much symbol. You know, other than the channel, I cannot really think about anything else. Even the the generics that, that are coming, well, they are still on, on square bracket, if I'm not mistaken. But symbols like, let's say, equal and greater than. And uh, lots of, I was talking about Elixir. So you have, you have like, not label, but uh, Atom or whatever they, they are calling that in, in their maps. Is that the thing like in Ruby where you put a colon before? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And also that, and there's like two or three ways to do that. So this is extremely difficult because, well, yeah, you, those small subtleties for a, a person that see well, those are huge. The symbols are very, very hard. So that's why uh, as well in Python, uh, due to the, the spaces that, that delimits the, the block, this is extremely, extremely hard, even with the text editor doing a nice job. But yeah, yes, symbols are, are difficult to work with at a re- reasonable speed. So related to that, in Go, the fact that uppercase letters and lowercase letters actually have significance, is that something that's proved to be challenging? Or like, how do you approach that? Well, for me at least, because I, I do have uh, my screen reader telling that to me. So that that's great. I prefer that than having, let's say, modifier like uh, private, public, protected, or sealed, or whatever uh, the, the flavor. I would say as well, not being an object-oriented language is also helpful. And let me explain, because, I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge claim probably, but this hierarchy of object in C-sharp and, and Java that we don't really have uh, unless you do composing in Go, we are returning to navigation as well. So yeah, the structure of all those objects is is kind of difficult to navigate, to be frank, to understand you know what what is going on in, in that. Because it's very quick for you to switch uh, switch file. Let's say you're moving from uh, one package to, to another and, and you're returning and visually you, you are quickly, rapidly re-understanding, if that's a word, where you were when you left. And this is not really easy 
with a screen reader. You you always need to recheck your surrounding. Again, a screen reader is a one-line thing. So let's say your cursor is on line 13, then you just have the context of that line. So let's say you have return empty string on Go. So, I mean, where are you? <laughs> What's that function? Where where I was, let's say. So having you know structure and not having uh, object and inheritance, in my opinion, I mean, it's helpful. That makes sense. I completely get what you're saying, where like if you jump from like line 13 to line 50, visually, I think we kind of just take for granted the fact that you see the function definition above it a couple lines. But like you said, if it's a screen reader that's just reading the line you're on, it's not going to give you that context and it wouldn't know to do it. So it's kind of like a, at least I suspect you'd have to spend a little bit of time figuring out like what function am I in and what like what is going on here? Yeah, absolutely. This might be a, a VS Code uh, extension that I I will probably want to write myself. So just just hit a, a keystroke and it probably exists. I, I honestly did not check, but yeah, it, it should speak out in which uh, which function you are in. That would be helpful for sure. I know that there's, I'm assuming there's something to collapse functions. I would almost think that would be helpful in the sense that it, it knows where that function is starting, if that makes sense. So it should have the context to sort of figure out this is what this is. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I hope so, <laughs> in fact. But yeah, I will, uh, I will check. So another question I have is with features like generics coming out, which arguably are going to make the language more confusing, at least if you're looking at code with generics in it, is that something that concerns you? And I say this as somebody who, when I'm reading generic code, it is not always clear to me. Like I have to take, like most Go code, I can just skim over it and be like, okay, cool, I know what this is doing. But generics, I like have to take a double take and be like, now what's that type again? And like, it takes a little bit more. And I can only imagine in your case, having that read out loud would be, like there's just a lot to consume in one line of basically saying the type and that it's this type. And does that make sense? Is that something that concerns you or are you hopeful that you'll just be consuming generics rather than writing code with it? It's a small concern, I would say. I've looked at generics and go and they appears to be digestible, but I frankly haven't tried them with a screen reader yet. So I'm not sure, I'm not really sure what, but yeah, it seems to be, I'm also, you know, used to generic. So, I mean, it does not appear to be that hard from a screen reader point of view. As I say, if you're using a lot of languages, that probably helps. I think one of the things that forces me to do a double take on generics is that I haven't used them in quite a while. Like I use them a lot in Java because you pretty much have to in Java, I feel like. But since then, I have not really touched them and it's been a while since I've used Java. So it's one of those things where I'm hoping that familiarity and seeing them more frequently makes it easier to read them and comprehend them. Otherwise, it's going to slow me down some too, which I think is an okay trade-off for some of the stuff, but hopefully they don't get used everywhere. Yeah, one aspect is that it brings that one-letter word, if you will, that I would expect lots of people would use probably T. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's capitalized as well. So the screen reader will, will say, you know, capital T at each time. So, But I prefer that. I'm grateful that it is capitalized as well. So that's something that I think will... Uh, if my memory is correct, they are capitalized. So I think most people have capitalized them in the examples I've seen. Okay. I can't imagine it's required, but it just seemed like a one of those things that just sort of carried over from other languages. Yeah, I don't know. I have a doubt now. I remember having seen an LM for a slice uh, hole, and I think it was a lowercase. I'm, I'm, that will be a challenge for sure. <laughs> Maybe I will, I will change my uh, my point of view. It will probably be difficult. You've got me curious now because I haven't... I think there was a proposed package for Go maybe 1.18, maybe 1.19. I don't remember which one it was being proposed for, but it was a package with, what, slice operations? Yeah. That was meant to go in the standard library. But I didn't actually look at the code too much to see what all was there and you know, what the code looked like. So I'll have to check that out at some point. I think the LM was lowercase, but I could be wrong. So my next question is more about other people you're working with. You'd mentioned like the single letter variables. Are there other things that developers do that make your life better or worse? Or I guess some of the times it might be yourself in the past. Yeah. Have you found yourself looking at code you wrote in the past and being angry at yourself? Oh, yeah, of course. But yeah, <laughs> I think commenting is is overrated. Probably, you know, a, a good comment is still very helpful. So we tend as as developers, I think, to not really comment, especially in Go, because it's so verbose. It's so 
it's so clear what it is doing. But a comment line explaining what's going on is can save like two minutes for a blind developers because now you don't have to scroll down a five line for a, a four that is restarting something or whatever whatever it is doing. But so yeah, commenting is extremely helpful for us. Nothing really well, pair programming. I mean, <laughs> this this is like a complete topic. It's super hard for a person to follow a of course, someone that sees well. When you're driving, it's often very difficult because the other party does not really understand what why why it is so long at this place. And it's it's just a line or whatever the reason. So yeah, pair programming is very, very difficult. It almost feels like if you had the audio one on your end, like if I was pair programming with you and you had the audio one, I'm guessing that's not normally the case because normally the audio on your own computer doesn't get pushed through video or anything like that. But if it was there, I suspect that would, it would be useful in the sense that it would help open up people's eyes as to what you're experiencing. And then I think they'd be a lot easier to be understanding and empathetic about it. But I agree with you that before then, you might be sitting there like, why is this person sitting on this line? I don't know what's going on. And meanwhile, you're trying to listen to the screen reader to understand what's going on in this line. And that's very different from you know, visually looking at it. Yeah. Maybe one one tip if you ever do anything, even if it's not pair programming, but just talking about code with a blind person, just say the line number. I mean, don't say find this function. No, no, no. You know, just say it's in the main.go at line 150. So that that is how you indicate to a blind person where to go exactly very fast. The worst part is as developers, we know how valuable that is when we're looking at like broken tests or compiler errors. But I agree with you that it's not something that we think to say, despite the information being readily available, which is not something we generally think to say when we're communicating verbally with somebody. Yeah. So I guess the next thing I'd, I'd want to ask is, what other languages have you tried going into this with the screen reader and those sort of tooling? You mentioned Go. Are there some others that you've given a shot to see how they were and how they compared? Oh, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm still doing uh, consulting in .NET uh, C so it's okay-ish. But yeah, for uh, there's so many Windows dialog and whatnot that come with .NET. It's not really the language per se. It's more like the framework or Visual Studio in, in itself. I know there is Visual Studio Speak, which I, I have not tested yet. Seems to be uh, like a a screen reader only built by the, the Visual Studio team, which is very nice. I mean, it's a great initiative. I did not have the time to test it. But yeah, so Elm, Elm is great because, well, the compiler. The, the compiler is just your copilot, really. And I'm not talking about GitHub copilot here, which is not good to... Anyways, that's another story. But but yeah, the, the Elm compiler is great because, well, first of all, when, when you are on, on your website, your web web app, whatever, you just have one error at once on the web UI. On the terminal, it's a little bit different. They are showing lots of error. But yeah, on, on the web page, uh, it's pretty clear. I'm trying to think about uh, about the tooling. So when you are creating CLI, for example, this might not be for blind user, but let's say for me five years ago, using colors, it should be optional. So I mean, I was a very low visual person five years ago, and any green, any 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 light colors were very hard for me to see. So yeah, that's a small small things for. But yeah, it's um, it's difficult. Uh, I don't know how to how to answer that. Frankly, the command line is really helpful, and uh, well, it might be a preference thing as well. So I'm you know I cannot speak for. Everyone, obviously. I talked with, uh, you know, when I was starting to really lose lots of vision two years ago, I, I talked with a PHP programmer that worked at uh, Booking.com, actually, which is completely blind. And he was trying to convince me to uh, to switch to Emacs and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, it's to take a Dart Vader word, it's too late for me. I mean, it, I can, <laughs> cannot do that. So I'm not sure at this point if I'm, Having my my baggage of twenty years of development that is difficult to change, that might be why I, I think I, you know I, I'm saying that C sharp is harder than Go, for example, as a blind developer. But yeah, I feel that the object oriented languages feels a little bit 
harder to navigate for sure. And all you know, all all those keywords that you need to uh, predicted seal and whatnot. So all all the visibility for a class or a function is uh, it really adds lots of noise in all sense of the words. You know, screen reader and and code wise, I think those are very uh, very hard because. You have to rely on having to return to the function, trying to see, oh yeah, what, what it was exactly, what, what's going on in here. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Honeycomb is built on the belief that there's a more efficient way to understand exactly what is happening in production right now. When production is running slow, it's hard to know exactly where problems originate. Is it your application code, your users, or the underlying systems? Teams who don't use Honeycomb scroll through endless dashboards guessing at what they mean. They deal with alert floods, guessing which ones matter, and go from tool to tool to tool, guessing at how the puzzle pieces all fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that is slowly killing your teams and your business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. Honeycomb quickly shows you the correct source of issues, discover hidden problems, even in the most complex stacks, understand why your app feels slow to only some users. With Honeycomb, you guess less and know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. And by our friends at Linode, cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern apps faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. You can get started today for free with $100 in credit at linode.com slash gotime. Linode has data centers all around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of location. Choose the data center that makes the most sense to you, close to you, whatever. You have access to 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs. Regardless of your plan size, you can choose shared or dedicated compute instances, or you can use that credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and so much more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Head to linode.com slash gotime. Again, click on the free account button, get that credit, get started today. Once again, linode.com slash gotime. earlier when we were talking that it's now like it's a slower process so it's not one where you can basically just takes more time to go through stuff and to write certain code so with that in mind do you find yourself taking more time and thinking things through a little bit more ahead of time or do you find yourself planning what you're going to do a little bit more than what you used to yeah a little bit the biggest difference is that i'm not reusing the intellisense or code suggestion as much now those are not very hard to use, but not as easy as as when you you are seeing exactly what what you are doing. So let's say, let's say you're you're writing a web handler in Go, for example. So, I mean, you type HTTP dot request, and usually I, I was doing tab very fast five years ago because I, I I was directly on the right thing. Now I I need to wait a little bit, listen to what the screen reader is saying, and oh, wow, what what he says. So you need to jump one one uh, element above. To try to to see, well, am I on, on the right thing? So you have to recheck almost everything that you are typing, in fact. So this is the flow. So let, let's continue with this Go web handler. So once you do R space HTTP dot request, for example, so you just re- return one word and you you make sure, well, did I type request or or not? And yeah, so those small things compared to, you know, it takes like what? One or two seconds to write this uh, normally. So yeah, it's uh, it's those things. So yeah, I, I think uh, test-driven development will probably finally be something I I should start to do because I I really see the value of having a you know the compiler really being my sighted friend, if you will. So th- this is where I, I will be certain that I'm not doing 
newbie, not newbie mistake, but I'm not doing, I don't know, blind mistake, or I don't know how to say that. I'm not doing like easy mistakes to miss when you're not seeing, because it's very, it's very hard. Well, I think it's worth like, or saying, I guess, that what is easy for one person is not necessarily easy for somebody else, because I'm sitting here in my head thinking like, I have typos or I swap two letters all the time. And if you couldn't see it visually, that it'd be very hard to check that real quickly. And I imagine that if I was closing my eyes and typing, I'd have to be much more like a little bit slower in typing and a little, little bit more certain that I was typing it correctly versus, you know, when you're when you can see, you can just kind of throw some code there real quickly. And if it's wrong, you'll see it and you'll just quickly take the suggestion it gives you and, and move on. Yeah. And, and often your code editor should do a small red line on there's something that, that is not. So we don't have that on the screen reader that there's no notifier for that. So yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would say anyone that wants to really understand a little bit what it is, yeah, close your eyes and don't cheat and write write an email, for example. <laughs> you will see that it is extremely difficult. But the tooling is great because a screen reader, you you can read the previous word, the previous sentence, the you know, the line above, the line on top, and whatnot. So without the cursor having to change the line. I don't know if I'm clear here, but you can move a virtual cursor, if you will, on the screen without you really moving. So editing cursor. So that takes a little bit of time to get used to because, yeah, it's strange. And it's also just learning a whole new set of keyboard shortcuts. Like you said, you don't like to use the mouse, and I'm assuming moving using the mouse is even harder if you can't see, or if not impossible. I would imagine at that point it's learning in a whole new set of keyboard shortcuts to go along with all the other ones that you already use. Oh yeah, there and there is a lot, and we haven't talked about web. So I mean, navigating a web page is probably harder than navigating code because in in VS Code you do Control P and you do you you go to your Go file and whatnot. Let me explain what my problem is visually. So I always add only. 2% of field of vision. So let's say a standard person has a 150 field of vision. So I add a 2% of that. When I looked at my screen, I was seeing like only two letters at a time. So I'm kind of used a little bit to just see a small, tiny portion of my screen. So I'm not really using a mouse for for a long, long time, I would say. It's a difficult transition, but it's not completely different for me. But yeah, it's still a huge change. So when you're actually visiting websites and going through there, what does that process look like, I guess? Because I have gone to a website and kind of like you can hit tab and kind of go through links. And there's like some things that I know that I can do if I like just don't have my mouse with me. But I can't imagine like what the process is like. Is it are you using like page down or something like that to read through it? Or what does that look like? There's tools in the browser, well, not in the browser, but uh, in, in the screen reader that allow you to navigate quickly by H tag. So H1, H2, H3. So that's the first thing. Then you kind of use your arrow key to continue in that paragraph. Let's say you are at the, the right H1, for example, or H2. There's also shortcut to quickly have all the links very, very quickly, all the links in the page that that you have, let's say, in the list box, or I don't know what it is, a list of some size. So you, you can scroll that very quick, just click any links. Let's say you are uh, you are on a phone and, and someone say, go click on that thing. So, I mean, it's like we were saying for peer programming, it's uh, navigating is, is really what makes things difficult. I used links for a long time when I was younger, to navigate website before the, the JavaScript single page. Uh, that was very, very easy for me at that time, but it's not possible anymore. There's too much JavaScript everywhere and those tools are not uh, not capable of interpreting that. So that's a, a little uh, complaint I have. Uh, the new the new doc site for Go, the, the, the go.dev, I think, before it was uh, godoc.org. It was just easier <laughs> before. Hopefully somebody on the Go team listens and, and hears that because I'm sure that wasn't their intent to make things harder. But No, 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 I'm sure. And now that they know that, maybe it's something they can put more attention into is like, how can we make this more accessible? Sure. So we are getting near the end of the hour. So do you have an unpopular opinion you'd like to share? Unpopular opinion. I actually think you should probably leave. Uh, 
Dominic, it's time for you to share your unpopular opinion, and then we'll post it on Twitter. <laughs> People will vote. And as Matt says, if it's not unpopular, you have to come back on the show. Okay. That's your punishment. Yeah, I hope I will not have a problem for that. But to me, the educational system is killing the creativity of our children, period. Do you want to elaborate? Well, I, I'm talking more about my region here, so I'm not talking about the entirety of the world. So we are living in Quebec, Canada, and uh, in here, well, there's not enough money that the government is, is injecting in the education system. And yeah, we, we did homeschool uh, all our lives with our children, and because we were feeling that they were going to not not be, you know, the enthusiastic idea of children are not very pushed forward in the current system, from my opinion. Do you feel like it was that way when you were in school, or do you think it's more of a more recent change? Oh, that's a good question. I know I hated going there. I was not having fun at all. And to be frank, I'm, I'm a huge entrepreneur as well. So yeah, so to me, having the liberty of expression and whatnot is very important. And to be frank, I mean, being stuck eight hours a day or six hours a day in a class, especially here in Quebec. So there is some school that don't even have window. The quality of the air in the, in the schools are in question at the moment in Quebec. I mean, we don't have a great educational system in here. That's sad. And I, I'm sad for the teachers as well, because they, it's not, not them, it's the government. It's all the, yeah. So I don't know how, how it is in, in the U.S., but yeah, in here, it's hard. I was going to say, in the U.S., at least, I can say that most teachers don't get into it. Like, basically, they, they love teaching kids and, and helping them grow. And they don't get into it for the money because there's not any money in teaching. Yeah. So like you said, I think most teachers have the right incentives most of the time. But unfortunately, they're kind of limited with resources. Our daughter's not in school yet. So I like haven't experienced it firsthand. But it is something that concerns me and something I talk with my wife about is like, does homeschooling make sense part of the time? And it's also hard for me because personally, when I was in school, I feel like I got lucky. And like our school had a gifted program. And I somehow got into it in like first grade. And basically that was really rare. And for the most part, as I, I've learned this later, most of the kids who got into the gifted program were teachers or children. It was rarely other kids in the school. So like it opened the door and allowed me to experiment with other stuff. Because basically one day every like two weeks, I would go to a completely separate class with other kids who were supposed to be in this gifted program. And we do things like logic puzzles. That's where I was first introduced to programming with BASIC. And like a bunch of things that really shaped my life. But there's probably a bunch of kids who deserve to be in a program like that, who like would have thrived with something like that, but they just didn't get the chance. And like seeing that now, I'm like, well, that really sucks. Yeah, exactly. I hear you. This is the same for sport, uh, you know, after school sport. They should be open to everyone. It's sad to see a, a kid that don't really have the money to do that, cannot do that because the money aspect. So the government should inject way, way, way more money into the education system. In the U.S. at least, after-school sports tend, well, I guess it depends on the sport. There are some sports that are harder, but like things like soccer and football and a lot of those things, usually the school, at least where I live, the schools do fundraiser type things to provide and like essentially a kid can go play football without any money or whatsoever. They'll just like the football team and other things will do fundraisers to try to help produce funds for that sort of stuff. But I've also heard, not my local school, but there's another school in the area that has a mountain biking team. They do like mountain bike racing. And it's not like officially a state-sponsored sport. It's like a third party, some other affiliate that's doing it. And I don't know how familiar you are with biking, but generally mountain biking is not a cheap sport to get into by any stretch. So as a result, it's unfortunately a sport that it's mostly kids who have money who can do it, and it's hard for other kids to get into it. So I know there's some people in the area who try to donate like bikes and things like that to make it more accessible for them, but it is a trickier thing where it's trying to figure out how do we get people into this because cycling is one of those things that's really healthy for you and it's something you don't need a whole team. Like, you know, soccer, football, you need a whole team to go do, whereas cycling is something somebody can do the rest of their life to stay in shape, which is better for everybody. Yeah. It is a tough problem, I think. That could be a huge difference for a certain child to have access to that or not. So that... That could be the difference that they need to just continue forward instead of quitting schools at some point. 
So we have somebody in the GoTime FM chat saying that they think this is going to be a popular opinion. You aren't going to be unpopular enough. You're going to have to join us again. Nice. So yeah, hopefully next time it will be for my Go knowledge instead of my physical condition. Well, we can definitely talk about some Go knowledge at some point. I didn't mean to seem like the only reason we wanted you on here was because of the blind aspect. It was uh, oh no no no. It was more of one of those that I have never talked with somebody who codes and Go who's blind, and in my mind, it's a great opportunity to learn something that otherwise you know we would have never thought about or heard. And that's also why I think everybody listening would enjoy this episode. Is it's not. It's something that I think people want to be more knowledgeable about so they can try to be a little bit more helpful if they can. But at the same time, it's really hard to know what is even useful or not. Like like you saying short variable names is not something I would have thought about until you said it. But now that you say it, I'm like, oh, I guess that kind of makes sense. Like I didn't think about that. Yeah, sure. Underscore are, are to be banned as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the underscore is a, a tricky one. That's... I think the only time I typically tend to see it in my own code is whenever I'm like temporarily just taking a variable and making it so it's not giving me a compiler error or when I'm basically importing a SQL driver of some sort. Yeah. Those seem to be the two cases. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm not talking about the underscore to ignore an error or something oh. like that. Yeah, I'm talking in the function name or oh. var- variable name. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I've seen them in some tests before, but I don't remember why off the top of my head. Yeah, same here. Maybe maybe it's more easy to see because test name, that's another thing. I mean, test name tends to be extremely long. There's the right amount of length to have. If it's too long, it's very hard as well. <laughs> so, yeah. You don't like a 200 character yeah. function name? No, not really. It's, yeah. <laughs> I can understand that. All right, Dominic, thank you for joining us. It was uh, great to hear your perspective and, and learn more about this. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we end up the episode? No, no, no. That's fine. Thank you very much for having me. This is great, and I, I hope to return at some point. Definitely. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Check out this awesome review by Maualijo on Apple Podcasts. It's called A Place Truly for Gophers, and they say, Anytime I listen to this podcast, I take so much away than I would in a week learning Go by myself. The lonely journey of being a gopher in Ghana suddenly disappears. The humor, education, tips from the expert panel keeps me coming back. Episode 149 is my fave by far, with 142 coming in second. Take a listen when you find this podcast and thank me later. Well, we will thank you right now, Joe. That's an awesome review. Appreciate it. Have you reviewed the show yet? Leave us a good one and I'll read it on an upcoming outro. And if you just happen to poke fun at Matt Ryer in that review, I will definitely read it. Go Time is produced by me, Jared Santo, with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by awesome sponsors. Shout out to Fastly, Launch Darkly, and Linode. We'll talk to you next time on Go Time. <laughs>